welcome back to The Middle of Medicine. This is episode 13, and I am one of your co-hosts, Peter. And I'm your other co-host, Aubrey. You threw me for a loop there, I didn't say your last name. <laughs> I know, Brayden and I do that, well, excuse me, Eden and I do that occasionally, uh, and uh, it's always a guess as to whether or not we're going to say our last name, <laughs> so we like to keep each other guessing, so I thought I would bring that to our podcast here in the middle of medicine. Well, I appreciate it. But uh, how the heck you been doing, Aubrey? Uh, I'm doing good, honestly. Still doing summer classes, but you know, we're powering through. <laughs> good. How much longer do you have? Not even that long. I think max a month. I think I really wow. only have three, three, maybe four weeks till finals. So I'll be done with my my lab ends earlier than my other one, so that will be done pretty soon, and then the other two will just kind of trickle off, so I am happy and excited for them to be done. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you are. I bet you are. Like I know I think I've said before, I still have those nightmares about being in college or med school or something where I have an upcoming test and realize that I never once went to the class uh, cracked the book, uh, looked at the syllabus, anything like that. So it just never seems to go away, you yep, know? truly. But How are you? Uh, I'm hanging in there. Um, got some uh, bad news this week that I don't want to be hyperbolic and use the term devastating, but um, it kind of feels devastating. Oh, so, you know. Yeah, there was a guy who we had made an offer to. I thought he was really great. I was looking forward to working with him. He'd been telling us for months that we were his top choice. I really would like to have a partner. He decided that uh, we were not where he was going to end up. And so it sounds like it was a little bit more maybe his wife thought his wife's uh, thoughts than his. Uh, but I'm um, pretty, pretty broken down by the fact that I thought I was going to have a really cool partner coming in to work with me within a year. And now I'm facing the reality that, hey, I'm still flying solo, <laughs> but... I've done it for six out of the 10 years I'm here, even though there should be four of us. I guess I'll keep doing it some more. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. Sorry about that. Well, you know, it's I'd been kind of having a gut feeling the last little bit that that was going to be the answer, maybe the last week or so. Mm. So I was disappointed, but I don't know if I'd say I was surprised. Oof. Still. It kind of plays into something that I wanted to follow up on. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, a number of weeks ago, we talked about the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act. And um, while this uh, blog post is a number of months old now, I only got it uh, e emailed to me a week or two ago. And I'm just going to read a bit of it. Uh, this is from uh, Dr. Lauren Roth. And uh, she shares uh, that she sees that the uh, Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act has been passed. And she says, although my very first thought was, oh, thank God, they're finally listening. That was quickly replaced with a sick feeling in my gut. Why? 
because I realized that, like almost every other, quote, resource, quote, available to promote mental well-being in healthcare workers, the word resilience would inevitably show up. I looked at the official wording of the law, and yep, it's there. Quote, identify strategies to promote resiliency, quote, sucker punch to the gut. And then she says, I can only speak from the physician's perspective, but I feel the anger welling up inside me every time I see this word. If you want to find a group of resilient people, you don't need to look much further than a gaggle of doctors. We spend seemingly endless years studying, four years in one of the most academically grueling settings, and then we do residencies, which involve anywhere from three to seven years, switching rotations every 30 days, constantly adapting to new surroundings and expectations. We are simultaneously learning and making decisions that can single-handedly change the trajectories of our patients' lives. We do this at the expense of our personal lives. Many of us delay dating, marriage, and or childbearing due to the demands that come with medical training, but we do this because we have been called to this profession. We sacrifice many things to be able to walk alongside patients as they navigate serious illnesses and the complicated healthcare system. We spend days continuing to fight for our patients with the storm cloud of insurance companies, regulations, ever-increasing administrative burdens hanging over our heads. Resilience? I'd say we have that in spades. So, you know, I think this gets back to kind of what we had said, that the answer is not asking healthcare workers to be more resilient. They are resilient. Like I work with people in the operating room who, you know, they're working incredible hours, long days, working well beyond the time they're supposed to go home because there are uh, surgeries that are still going on and they still need staff for those surgeries. And they do it. They do it because they feel an obligation to the patients they're taking care of. And they do it at the expense of their own physical and mental well-being sometimes. So yeah, don't tell those people they need to toughen up. That's not what we need. It's not what we need at all. I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts when I was reading that? I know you and I have talked about this a lot. Yeah, it just is ridiculous. It just it just shows me that um, they don't, you know, no one actually cares about fixing any problem. And I know we've talked about this before, but it just proves over and over again that it's just they want to seem like the good guys, the heroes for putting in a law in place that's supposed to help the extremely burnt out healthcare industry. But it's just a band-aid over like a gaping wound in my head yeah but no that's a great way to put yeah it. it's like they're like it's just ridiculous to me that's all i can even say i can barely even be mad i'm just like yeah <laughs> i'm not even surprised yeah. i know well and that's the sad thing is it feels like we kind of get past the point of being upset about it to the point of just sort of begrudging acceptance because we're not going to stop doing our jobs. We're not going to stop taking care of people while we try and get this figured out. You know, I mean, what options do we have? Are we going to go on strike? Well, it's not like that there's any sort of union and the times when healthcare workers do try and unionize, boy, you think companies like Amazon and Apple are fighting back against unionization in their organizations. You watch healthcare workers try and unionize and it, it will go like things will go 
bonkers. It will go crazy. People will freak oh, out. Yeah, I bet. So I don't know. It's it's a tough thing. And and again, we don't have a solution, but I want to bring up a I'm gonna bring it up when I see a reason to bring it up. Yeah. And I appreciated that this uh, this physician kind of saw the same things you and I saw, felt the same things we felt. And, you know, we're not the only voices out there saying, guys, we've got to do different and we've got to do better. So, well, today I kind of brought a topic to, uh, to the pod that I thought Aubrey and I could talk about. And I want to preface this by saying we want to talk about this in the most respectful way possible. But every once in a while, it can be a little difficult. So if we sound disrespectful, we certainly don't mean to be. We're trying to be respectful. Uh, But what I thought we could talk about today is unrealistic expectations in an era of kind of regular medical miracles. You know, we live in an era, and I'll just use what I work with as an example. Um, Not that many years ago, if a guy presented with late stage uh, metastatic testicular cancer, he had a five to 10% survival rate. Currently, if a guy presents with late stage testicular cancer, that's metastatic, he has a greater than 90% survival rate. Wow. And so we see so many things where we're able to do more, we're able to do better. And if you think about kind of the grand scheme of things, we look at, You know, medicine has advanced in many ways similar to how technology has. So many leaps and bounds in a relatively short amount of time. You know, it wasn't that long ago where it was like, well, let me drill a hole in your head, stick some leeches on you, and why don't you do some cocaine? There's my (laughs) answers for whatever's ailing you. (laughs) And we've come a long way from that, although I'm sure there's some people who might wish we were still handing out cocaine. (laughs) But needless to say, have you had any experiences Uh, thus far in your medical career where you've kind of had to face unrealistic expectations, whether it was from a patient or I think probably a lot of times from a patient's family. Yeah. I, the first thing that comes to mind is when we have a lot of kiddos that have spinal fusions in our unit. It's a very, very common procedure we see in our unit. Um, And, I mean, the word is kind of obvious, but a spinal fusion is basically they fuse together your spine at a certain, from a certain point to a certain point. So, for kids with scoliosis and that sort of thing, they'll do spinal fusions. And they're super common, but they're super, super painful. And so, the kiddos will come out of surgery with epidurals, they'll have a PCA, they'll have a hemovac, and they'll have a Foley catheter. So these are all things, basically, advanced mm-hmm. pain management is what the epidurals and the PCA are for. Very, very strong medications to help with the pain. <laughs> very true. <laughs> the hemovac is to just drain excess blood and fluid from the sites and then the Foley catheter is because they can't stand up and go pee. So the pee has to, uh, just come out some way <laughs> and we don't want mm-hmm. them to have like a brief or something. Cause it's really painful for them to turn back and forth. So basically it's a very painful procedure. They have lots of lines and stuff all around them. And we have very kind of strict protocols we have for spinal fusion kids. 
and we, we turn them, we have to reposition them every two hours because they can't just stay on their back all the time. Right. Um, and it's basically, it's a very grueling, it really sucks to have a spinal fusion, especially on those first, first day or two after surgery. And some kiddos know that. Some of them will just kind of sleep through the first few days because they're just knocked out mm-hmm. with meds and they don't want to be awake because it hurts. <laughs> but mm-hmm. there will also be some kiddos who, and the, the family as well, who for some reason expected no pain after <laughs> the surgery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, is obviously not realistic. <laughs> It sucks that it hurts, <laughs> but it's going to hurt. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You can't really feel most of your legs and your back just hurts and hurts and hurts. It's going to hurt. That's just how it is. But we'll have kids who are calling every five minutes and they're like, my back hurts. And we're like, I know. Sorry. <laughs> 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 and we'll give them something. Something strong. Ten minutes yeah. later, they call again. Back still hurts. Yes, we know. The meds haven't kicked in yet. A few minutes later, my mm-hmm. back still hurts. Yes, we know. <laughs> and it will be, especially during a night shift, it will be like every ten minutes they'll call and be like, my back hurts. Why is my back hurt? And we're like, because you just had surgery on your back. Sorry. <laughs> it really just yeah. sucks. And they'll just have this expectation that, it's not going to hurt. And I know it's kind of harder for kids to just like endure that really awful pain. So I kind of understand when they complain about it. But what really sucks is when the parents don't understand is when they're like, well, why can't you Mm -hmm. give them something else? And we're like, we literally have given them every single medication that is ordered (laughs) and we cannot give any more for a number of hours. Like we cannot. And... (laughs) Have you ever used the line, we have to walk a fine line between controlling their pain and stopping them from breathing? Yes. Yes, we have actually. Because I have used that one before. I've said, here's the thing. I understand you're still feeling some pain, but if I give you more narcotics to help with that, there's a very good chance you'll stop breathing. And if you think you hurt right now, imagine how you'll hurt when I have to do CPR. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we haven't exactly said it like that, but I've definitely, I've definitely <laughs> been like, if we give you one more thing, usually like to the, to the parent, I'll usually be like, if, if we give them this medication after they're already pumped so full of all this other stuff, their oxygen tends to drop. And that's not really something mm-hmm. we want to see. That's usually how I phrase it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, for example, yeah. the other day I had a kiddo where I don't remember what the medication was. There's so many names of meds. And I did go to nursing school, so I don't know what all the names of the meds are. But we gave him something. And I look at her oxygen on the monitor, and it's like 92, 88, 85, 79, 75 and I was like okay (laughs) (laughs) so I go in there you're like hey take a deep breath so I go in there and I turn up her oxygen a little bit and I'm like hey honey can you breathe for me can you take in a deep breath and she kind of opens her eyes and she's like what (laughs) I'm like can you breathe for me please (laughs) 
And then her yeah. parent is kind of freaking out because she was like, why is her oxygen dropping? And I was like, because of the medication we just gave her. Because she was in pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's kind of, it's it's rough when the parent. Cause, well, and those machines are obnoxious. They make ugly yep. noises that can definitely make people antsy. Yeah, so. and I feel bad because the parents are just looking out for their kids. And if their kid's in pain, they're like, oh, well, let's call the nurse. And so they'll continue to call us and we're like, I'm sorry, there's not really much else we can do right now. And what's worse is that when we have to reposition them, that always hurts when we first turn them. Mm -hmm. And we try and, you know, keep their body in alignment and get them lots of pillows and that sort of thing. But it's going to hurt when we move them, you know. And I will warn them, be like, hey, it's probably going to hurt for the first few minutes, but then let's just sit and wait for it to stop hurting, and then you can go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it'll be like two minutes after we've repositioned them, and they call, and they're like, this is uncomfy. And I'm like, yes, I know. It was two minutes ago. Just sit here for mm-hmm. a second, please. <laughs> yep. But, yeah. You know, I saw that. So I just recently had to take out a, a kidney for kidney cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, the way I generally prefer to do that uh, is laparoscopically, but knowing that I'm going to need to make an incision, oh, I don't know, about 10 to maybe 15 centimeters long. And if you don't like centimeters, figure out how long that is yourself because centimeters rule. <laughs> it's the right measurement to it use. Is, it really is. Anyway, so I got to make this, you know, 10 to 15 centimeter incision in their anterior, you know, the front of the abdomen Mm -hmm. to get the kidney out. And so what I'll do is I actually make that incision at the start of the case and then put a gel port in place that allows me to put a hand inside. So afterwards, the patient was like, I'm just really sore right here around this incision and I don't understand why. And I finally just had to look at the patient and I said, hey, so that incision, it went in between your abdominal muscles. And then I held up my arm and my hand and I said, so I had to stretch your abdominal muscles far enough apart that I could put my hand and arm almost up to my elbow inside of you. <laughs> and then he was like, the, the patient was like, oh, so that's why I'm yeah. sore. And I was like, yes, that's why you're sore. And they were totally cool after that. Right. They were like, I get it. I understand why I'm sore. You literally had your arm inside my belly. And I said, that is correct. I had my arm inside your belly. And so I think sometimes we can do a better job of explaining those things to patients to help them understand you're going to have pain. You know, and I see this obviously as a surgeon, I'm operating three days a week. I see it all the time. People after surgery having pain. Like, yep, you're going to have pain. We'll do what we can to get you there, but you're going to have pain. We'll manage it as best we can, but you're going to have pain. Yes, we understand it's going to hurt. And you just kind of have to sometimes keep coming back to this. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. So, yeah, I would say that like pain after surgery or procedures. I mean, another one that I'll sometimes get, guys, obviously, I do vasectomies. I do a lot of vasectomies. And it always is a little shocking to me when I tell guys, and and I just have this thing down, like I don't even think about it. When I'm talking to a patient before the vasectomy, 
It's like a switch flips in my brain and I just start reading the script. But I always say to them, I will do everything I can to make you as comfortable as possible, but there are parts of this you are still going to feel. And some guys look at me and they're like, wait, what? I'm going to feel this? (laughs) And I'm like, dude, you're going to be awake (laughs) while I'm making an incision in your scrotum, pulling part of your scrotal contents out to the outside world, (laughs) removing that. And then cauterizing it to seal it. Yes, you're yes. going to feel some of this. And, you know, and again, a lot of people are really good with that. And I explained to them. I'm very honest. I say, look, I'm going to make a single incision. I'm going to inject numbing medicine. You are going to feel the go in, need the needle going in. And when I start injecting the numbing medicine, it is going to sting like crazy for less than a second. And then I'll always tell him, I say, when I'm getting a hold of the vast deference, it is going to feel like you've been kicked in the crotch. <laughs> and it's not quite that bad. But again, I'm like, right, let me paint you this picture that's worse that than what it is so that perhaps then we can dial it back and help you with your expectations. Uh-huh. But, you know, so, so pain is a huge thing that we're just constantly dealing with. And it always surprises me the number of people I interact with who seem to truly believe that they shouldn't have any pain ever. Mm. And I don't know if this is just the pessimist in me or whatever, but I just want to look at some of these people and be like, life is pain. (laughs) Deal with it. (laughs) But, but no, really like, you know, you, and you've seen this, you get people who just think they shouldn't ever hurt. And I'm like, I wake up all the time and I get out of bed and I'm like, wow, why does my leg hurt? But I don't go to the doctor about it. Cause I'm like, it'll be fine. Whatever. It's going to go away. You know, things like yeah. that. Just it's a constant, you know, little pains here and there, but there are actually people who will come and see a medical provider for any of those things, because I think they believe they shouldn't ever hurt. Yeah. And I would just say, life is pain. <laughs> That's just part of life. You know, and, and my dad always used to tease when I'd say something hurt. He'd be like, that's how you know you're alive. <laughs> and so maybe that's why it's like drilled into my head in this sort of way. But I think that we have an obligation to really help the people we take care of understand hey, sometimes things are going to hurt and that's okay. And we'll do what we can to manage that, to control it, but don't have the expectation you're never going to hurt because you're going to hurt. Are there any other way, other places besides pain where you have seen kind of unrealistic expectations or, or maybe another way to think of it is when people, again, whether they're the patients or patients, family members, sort of run up to the limits of what medicine can do. Yeah, I, we get a lot of complex kids with just a lot of brain issues, obviously. We deal with a lot in my unit. And something that we will see a lot is hydrocephalus kids that then will need either an EVD or they'll do like an EVD until they can get a shunt placed or they'll just do an EVD Mm -hmm. for a little bit to drain what's in the brain and then if sometimes they don't need a shunt. 
And so that's kind of scary because those are two kind of scary things. Like, I mean, a DVD is obviously scary and a shunt is obviously scary and neither are perfect. Obviously an EVD is not a permanent fix. It's just a temporary thing until you can get a shunt or something like that. But uh, still a shunt is not a perfect fix. And sometimes I wonder if the doctors don't lay out the expectation or lay out the realities of that sort of procedure to the family because like we get shunt infections all the time like or their Mm -hmm. shunt will just fail and the kid will have to come back or they it just fails while they're in the hospital and then we have to fix something like that but so we don't have a perfect fix for that sort of thing which sucks it really does and i don't know all the details of why shunts malfunction but they just do sure so the the (laughs) a lot of times we'll get families who will then turn to you know the techs and the nurses who are there all the time and i've gotten yelled at where the the family's like why isn't this working? The doctor said it was going to work. And, like, yelling at me. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not the one who did the shunt. Like, don't ask me. But we'll just get a lot of the time. Well, they're, they'll just, they're concerned for their kid. So I understand. But they had this picture in their head where it was going to be a perfect fix. And they were going to have no more problems. Which, kiddos with hydrocephalus, again, we just don't really have a perfect fix for that. And some kiddos are really complex, right. and sometimes it's just not going to work. Medicine isn't perfect. That we wish, we wish it was, but it is not. Mm-hmm. And so, just a lot of the times, we'll get parents who are frustrated that it's not going perfectly, and that why do we have to have this EVD? I thought we were going to get a shunt, and then we have to explain why they have to have the EVD, and then they are getting mad that they even have to have the shunt in the first place and they're getting mad that we even have to do an EVD and then they're getting mad that they can't do the surgery right then, right there to fix their kiddo with hydrocephalus and then just problem after problem and I'm like, I'm sorry that we cannot magically wave a wand and fix your kid. That would be great if we could. It would be amazing. We would do it all the time. (laughs) But we just can't and it sucks because I don't have like a solution for them. You know, because I can't diagnose stuff. I can't be like, so right. we can just do this. I just am following following the rules. But it just sucks because it's not a perfect fix, and the families think that it is. And it's just, yeah, it really sucks. Well, you know, I think that we, as physicians and, and other healthcare providers, often we don't do a great job of telling people what to expect because we're scared because we know that it's not perfect and that it might kind of suck and that there's going to be crappy parts about it. And so we're very reticent to really lay it out there and spell it out, which isn't the right thing. I'm not justifying that. I'm just saying, I think we do it. And you know, I, I, it is something that is conscious in my mind when I'm talking to patients about what to expect. And so, you know, I had a patient I saw this week for a particular issue and we've tried a whole lot of different things 
pretty much all the medications, all of our procedural options, we've either tried them or there's one or two that aren't appropriate for this person because of some other issues that they have. And I had to just kind of say to him, look, I've got one more thing I can try and this is it. And I'm really, really sorry that we haven't fixed this problem yet, but you've got all these, you know, this dozen other things going on. And some of those things are affecting the problem you're here to visit me about. And you know, the whole body's interconnected. So I can't just fix this thing in isolation. It's being impacted by these other things. You know, I said, I promise you, I'll do the very best I can for you, but I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to fix this. And this person was understandably, you know, upset. And, and I get where that's coming from, but at the same time, it's really hard on, on our side of it going, you know, we know there's so much we can do, but there's still a lot that we can't do that we don't understand. And a lot of limits to what we can offer people. And one of the hardest times and, and issues that I run into is sometimes the limits are because of medicine, right? It hasn't progressed far enough right, which sucks. for us to take care yeah. of that issue, which sucks. But you know, what's actually even more difficult mm. when sometimes the limit is because of the person mm. I've got patients who I, I have one patient who has bladder cancer. Uh-huh. And bladder cancer continues to come back over and over again. And every time their bladder cancer comes back, they get frustrated and they ask, well, why did this come back? And every time the response is the same. And the response is the question, are you still smoking? No. And every time the answer is the same, yes, I'm still smoking. And then I look at them and I say, Smoking causes bladder cancer, as we have discussed dozens of times, until you choose to stop, bladder cancer is going to come back. I can't make it go away if you're still doing one of the things that causes it. Right. And that's frustrating for them to hear, and it's frustrating for us to have to say and share, but we have to do it. We have to be honest. We have to say, here's what it is. Look, I'm a big dude. I understand. I need to lose some weight. I'm working on it. I try and exercise four or five, six times a week. I try and, you know, all that kind of stuff because I understand and recognize there are so many complaints that are caused by people being overweight and obese, but they don't want to hear that. You know, I see people who come in to talk about erectile dysfunction and they're 400 pounds. And I'm like, I, I can't fix your erections when you're so overweight, you know, your heart, you just can't get the blood down where it needs to go. Cause it's so busy just trying to get blood to all the rest of you. And people don't want to hear those things. And so I think one of the things we have to do is figure out how can we have those conversations and ensure that we're being respectful, that we're being appropriate. But sometimes you've got to have that hard talk and you've got to say, look, here's a place where I can't do anything more because medicine is at its limit. But sometimes here's a place where I can't do any more because you aren't 
doing what I've asked you to do or what you need to do so that what I am offering you is effective. And that's really hard to hear. Yeah. So I don't know. You know, medicine is amazing. And just like everything else, it continues to progress. One of the reasons I find it so interesting is because we have to keep learning. There are new technologies, new techniques, new understandings of thing, of, of disease processes and things that are coming out all the time. Yeah. And we have an obligation to stay on top of that. And, and so it's cool. Like, it's great. You get to learn all the time. But at the same time, that's because there's still stuff to continuously learn because we still don't know a lot of it. Right. No, absolutely. And another thing I think, like, definitely feeds into the fire of patients and families having unrealistic expectations is just the barrier of medical jargon that they just don't understand, I think. Oh, for sure. Especially, I definitely think that's super prominent, at least in my unit, um, because, you know, something will, a kiddo needs something, they'll have some sort of procedure, and the the doctors don't understand, or not the doctors, sorry, the family doesn't understand it all the way, and so then, you know, they have some sort of unrealistic expectation, like their kiddo's not going to have any pain. Or they're not going to be able to do this and this. And I've had a couple times, especially with kiddos with EVDs, because it's kind of a weird, you know, it's just a tube sticking out of their head. So if then you don't understand what that is, it's kind of like, oh, what is that? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, a lot of the time, will have families be really, really worried. And again, have unrealistic expectations about things. Like they're like, why can't I move my kid? Like, what is the reason for this and this? And so if I just kind of sit down, take the time to explain why a certain thing is happening, a lot of the times then they're like, oh, that makes sense. But you just kind of have to get past that barrier because, I mean, I had a family one time where, I don't know if it just got lost in translation or something, but someone did did not explain to this family why their little baby had a one-to-one for the the baby's EVD. And so the family was just super confused as to why there was a tech sitting in there all the time, watching the baby all the time, and being in the room while the family's trying to sleep. Like, that was just lost in translation somehow. And so mm-hmm. I was there one-to-one one day, and I, I just... They were like, so why are you here? <laughs> they were like, Cause, <laughs> like, and why can't we move our baby? And why can't I nurse the baby and stuff like that? And so I just kind of was like, okay, let's just sit down and have this conversation real quick. <laughs> I'm not here to just watch you sleep creepily. <laughs> I just right. keeping your kiddo safe. And I just, I just kind of explained to them why we have to do all of these things and what we can do to help make their kiddo comfortable and help to make them comfortable and that sort of thing. And just getting past the barrier, I think helped them feel a lot more comfortable, but it's just kind of that first, like, they don't understand what's going on. We keep doing things that they don't understand and their kid has to do things or can't do certain things because of, you know, they don't understand what's what's going on. So I think a very, very big part of what can help ease that is just making sure we explain things. Because the medical jargon, like, 
not everyone went not everyone knows medical stuff that's fine there's a there's a reason why some people know it and some people don't that's fine but just making sure we don't treat them like they're stupid but also make sure we don't treat them like they know everything we know because they're not going to and it's gonna be really scary especially when their kid is in the hospital in in my case yeah so i don't know i think no, that's a. I think that that's just a super important thing is to try and break past that barrier. And sometimes it doesn't work. You know, sometimes they're still like, well, why is my kid in pain? And then, you know, sometimes that just doesn't get through. But mm-hmm. a lot of the times it really is mm-hmm. just getting past the weird medical language barrier and explaining what's actually going on. And it's well known that that is a, a really important thing to the point that a lot of times in patient satisfaction uh, surveys, of all the different ones that I am aware of, one of the questions is to that effect that, you know, my provider explained things to me in a clear fashion that was easy to understand that sort of thing. So it's, that's a huge issue. And it, it's easy for us because we speak it all the time to forget that it's not normal. You know, I remember when I got home from my mission in Guatemala where I'd been speaking Spanish for two years and I, speak really good Spanish. I mean, I, I'm fluent still to this day, but when I very first got home because it had been so much Spanish and even when I was talking English, I was talking English to people who spoke Spanish. Uh So we just mixed it all the time. Like I would just flip into Spanish things without even realizing I was talking Spanish because you're just so immersed in it. And it's the same thing in medicine. We have to remember that these people we're dealing with and that we're talking to and that we're helping, they haven't been immersed in this language and it is a completely different language. So that's a great point. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to bring up before we wrap it up? I mean, not much. It just, just sucks when kiddos are in pain and I'm like, I can't do anything for you. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, it does. You're absolutely right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap it up today. Um, I I was going to briefly mention if anybody had any issues with the podcast for a few days in there, um, that was my fault. I didn't notice that the website had expired for a couple days uh, and that the card that it was supposed to get charged to had been replaced by the bank. So it was no longer valid. Anyway, things are back up and running. We should be good to go. Hopefully this doesn't happen again. And I apologize (laughs) Uh, I didn't even think about that until a nurse that I work with, I think it was either yesterday or it might've even been this morning. She kind of grabbed me and pulled me aside. She's like, Hey, I really wanted to listen to this burnout episode. And I went to go and it was gone. And I was like, Oh, that was my fault. It it should be up and good. Everything should be good now. Try it again. I think you'll be okay. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I subscribe to the podcasts to make sure that, And so when, you know, I I discovered it when I was posting the episode that um, my sibling and I do, uh, and I was posting it on Sunday and it it popped up, it it refreshed, it came to me. So I know that we're back in business, things are working, but if there was a little hiccup in there, that'd be why that was my fault. (laughs) I didn't notice it, things had expired. So anyway, um, Again, we appreciate anybody who's taken the time to listen. We would love a review. We would love uh, any comments that you want to share with us. And feel free to reach out at feedback at themiddleofmedicine.com. 
And until next time, Aubrey, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah. Bye, guys.